Welcome. You're now listening to Dirty Feet. Bonjour. Oui, vous êtes sur les ondes des pieds sales, aka Dirty Feet podcast on No More Radio. And hosted by Joanie Farrand, JD Papillon, Alison Burns. Stay tuned. We're going to move you. Happy birthday to the Edgy Women Dance Festival that's turning 20 this year. We are very lucky to be able to talk to the curator, who is also the artistic and general director of Studio 303, Miriam. We've also got on the show today one of the artists presenting work in the festival, Gillian Doko, and we're going to be talking to her as well. This festival is basically a feminist art practices festival, as it's been described in the in the press material. And this year specifically, there's a theme, mixed theme of arts and sports and gender. And uh, Studio 303 does have uh, a basis in in body and performance creation uh, of, of of artwork. Mm-hmm. And you do. Uh, workshops, you do shows, you do a, a lot surrounding that so as a result the, the Edgy Women Festival also has that part of that influence in it. So this is our, our tie-in to Dirty Feet and our dance and our movement theme this week and uh, we're really excited to be talking about the Edgy Women Festival. Like I said, it's 20 years old, it's a really interesting festival and it comes around once a year and uh, yeah, Please, Miriam, please tell us a little bit more. Fill in the gaps for me. What have I missed? (laughs) Well, I guess this is uh, the first year that the festival has had a theme. And um, I'd say that, and a lot of people are asking how that came about and... um, and it's also funny because I'm I'm really not interested in sports. Um, in fact, uh, you know, I was so relieved when there was the strike, and <laughs> because people uh, are available more and they, they they see art more. And anyway, so it's it's really not something I gravitate towards naturally. But I'd say in the past few years, um, I've just had a few experiences that really marked me. One was watching a women's uh, boxing match at the Sala Rosa under the chandeliers with the velvet curtains and you know I just thought that's the most exciting show I have seen in a long time and then I, I went to a hockey match once as well and went oh my god the pro- theatrical production values are incredible and then just the excitement that I'd say uh, women and maybe particularly queer women as well some of the friends that I have uh have like sports has been such an impart, important part of their coming of age or their identity or the way that they found a place in the world or strength or so it's it's sort of I, I, I'm really looking at it from an outsider perspective I think it's also sports is definitely clearly an arena where our society promotes gender stereotypes that are very passe so it's a, a really fun uh, arena to subvert yeah, you mentioned that uh, our culture promotes a rhetorical opposition between art being sensitivity, subculture, femininity, and sports being strength, mainstream, masculinity. So it makes for a really interesting combination with the, the gender tagged onto that. Mm-hmm. Because it's the Edgy Women Festival, is it really exclusive to, to women in terms of performers, in terms of mm-hmm. audience members, in terms of subject matter? No, the Edgy Women Festival would never call itself exclusive. <laughs> it's very inclusive, but definitely the highlight and the history of the festival has been to promote uh, women's voices that we don't hear very often. But it doesn't exclude men. Um, it's true that there aren't many in the programming very often, but it does happen if it's appropriate. This year we do have some transgender artists who are participating in the programming, and they're transgender of various degrees as well. There's Heather Castles, who considers herself transgender, but, um, you know, goes by she and was born uh, a female. There's uh, Chris Gray, who is going to be participating in the colloque, who you know, doesn't mind either word, but certainly passes more clearly as masculine or male. I think we've got Polly Korn, who is going to uh, help out with the uh, lucha match. 
so yeah, no, it's it's very inclusive, and I think that uh, gender stereotypes hurt men as as much as they do women. So I certainly hope. I mean, actually, one of the strategies with having the sports theme is to broaden the audience because, for sure, it's an experimental festival. And with a very niche audience, but uh, I'm really trying to, to broaden it. And at first I focused really on, on trying to bridge three worlds that you wouldn't think uh, were as isolated as they are, but you know, there's not actually very much crossover between academics, activists, and artists. And that's something I've always tried to bring together because I thought that that kind of feminist art festival would be a very obvious shared ground. But it's not that easy. But this year, uh, we're trying to broaden even more, and it's fun. We've been having a lot of media, like really mainstream media attention. Um, and I think that just the sports theme in general and putting posters in gyms and arenas and that kind of thing, we'll see if it pays off. But I hope to have a broader audience. There is a bit of a gender binary that's established with the use of women, but mm -hmm. at the same time being a feminist mm -hmm. festival. Yeah. Uh, Do you, do you ever feel that the name does conflict with the evolution of our understanding of gender and of gender's place in society? Yeah, absolutely. I I have thought about dropping women, but then edgy on its own is kind of... And honestly, if I'd come up with a better idea, perhaps I would have used it. But now I'm getting a bit attached to it because I do find that with all this, um, the genderqueer movement, that now there seems to be almost a new space for for saying, actually, no. <laughs> I would like to underline and highlight women. And, you know, I think that you can do it in an, an exclusive way. But I understand that for sure having women in the title can send a message that, that men aren't welcome. And I do get that, that question all the time, you know, oh, oh, the skating's only for women. Oh, But, you know, the reverse of that is look at the French language where, you know, if you have a hundred men and one woman, you say, mm-hmm. Il. Il. Could there be a sort of reclaiming of women as an all-inclusive term, in a way? I suppose. I mean, I don't. I don't. I try not to identify too much. Sometimes I don't even know what I mean, you know. So I try and let things be what they are. But I have always, in the calls for submissions, certainly said uh, all genders are welcome, and and I've, I spelled it out. Uh, I think for the edgy hockey as well that. All genders were welcome because I forget sometimes for me, I think it's obvious, but then I guess it really isn't at all. Speaking of that, how do you curate this festival? Is it an open call? Do you seek out specific artists? Mm -hmm. What are the parameters? Yeah, some it, it hasn't always been the same, but this past year I did invite three artists well ahead of time. I have to for funding purposes have some names, and I thought it's the 20th anniversary. I want to invite back uh, Antonia Livingston and Marais Boulogne from uh, Brussels, who are two artists who I have a fairly, or 303 has a longer history with, and who are really at the top of my edgy <laughs> list. And then Heather Castles, who I had met recently, but who so clearly had you know, a practice that really blended gender, sports, and art. I do um, want to mention that Heather is the image yeah. that's uh, circulating for the Edgy Women Festival right now, and it's such a striking photo. It's it, really... It, so many people bring it up in conversation. Yeah. It's really... It gets people interested. So, so, yeah, I invited those three ahead of time, and then there was an open call to round it out. I worked with a committee, and I've done that the past few years, um, of, a, of former artists and people who work at 303 and interns and whoever wants to be, who has a genuine interest, is, is welcome on the committee. Uh, it's really great to have different perspectives. And we had a call, yeah, and we were seeking work that was related to the theme, but not always necessarily, like uh, Julien's piece was not... Uh, you know, about uh, sports in any way, but there's also just that when you put something in a certain context, it reads differently. So we were, right. it's, a, it's a mix, you know, you're, you're looking for the work that stands out, that's interesting, but also you're looking for a bit of a variety, what will balance in terms of types and styles and space that is occupied as well when it's site-specific. The notion of subverting, mm -hmm. subverting space, subverting the body and traditional notions of gender uh, is pretty essential in edgy women, if mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken. 
Where do you think this is going as as like an artistic practice? Do you feel that we've pretty much explored as much of what we can subvert, or do you feel that there are still uh, highways of subverting that we haven't explored? Oh, I wouldn't know how to define or imagine highways that we haven't explored. I think that it's not necessarily artistic, but that The, the gender queer movement. I think people who identify as gender queer and who really claim that space in between too, who really, who don't say, "Oh, I've transitioned," but I'm actually both, and who push that and insist on that. I think that is at the forefront of what's exciting in, in gender exploration and something that is very, like, really unfamiliar for most people. But other than that, I think there's always, you know, I mean, it's, this is not the first time that, that someone has explored uh, sports and art and gender, but it's the first time I've seen it happen in, in Montreal, maybe, or on this kind of a scale. But, you know, as soon as I did have that idea, I, I, I noticed that, wow, there's there's a whole, a lot of work that's been done already on that front. But I think when you're looking at your own community, there's always new terrains and, uh The fact that we're collaborating with a boxing club, you know, that has all kinds of implications, um, both practical and uh, cultural. And, and the fact that we're you know, doing something weird in, a, in an arena. Uh, we really tried to uh, collaborate with NCW. The, um, it's one of the, the companies that puts on uh, women's wrestling in Montreal. And that just didn't work out for logistical reasons, but I was really into that challenge. And on some level, we are still collaborating because it's it's interesting to me that it's two subcultures. I didn't expect that women's wrestling was such a subculture. I thought it would be a little more um, mainstream. Uh, but I went to some matches, and it is really niche, <laughs> you know? But completely separate from the edgy women subculture and I found that really fascinating and we're, so we're trying to also find common ground that way and I'd say that's stuff that's not explored much because they're not difficult they're not easy um, they're not easy collaborations really it's pretty risky I have no idea what the result's going to be so actually talking about uh, subcultures like women and mm -hmm. sports and subcultures I was surprised there's not really any roller derby mm -hmm. in the festival was that an intentional choice because there is such a link between mm -hmm. roller derby and like women in sports yeah no it's not intentional at all it's just those girls are crazy and they have no time because they're constantly training yeah I would have loved to involve roller derby and I have uh, lots of friends Uh, who do it and and Meg Hewings who's organizing the um, unruly hockey match also this is the second year we're doing it really wanted a kind of face off actually this is the third year that I've tried to collaborate <laughs> with, with roller derby the first year it was um, an artist who came from Minneapolis Karen Sherman and she's also another uh, one of the elements that led to the theme this year And she came and did a residency, and, and she really wanted to create a dance piece on ice that really spoke to gender. She was specifically looking at hockey and roller derby as two extremes, one that is hyper-sexualized and the other one that is where your sexuality is annihilated, and so is your gender. You know, you really can't. Anyway, the, the two costumes of these sports are diametrically opposed. Yeah, it's just really interesting. So she wanted to do a piece that was playing with those two aesthetics and cultures and baggage and all that. But, uh, yeah, we could not get... I was like, no problem. I can get you, like, 50 amazing skaters. And they'll be half hockey players and half roller derby, no problem. I, I've got, you know, such good connections. And then she arrived, and I started to panic because people were like, oh, well, you know, no, we're training 40 hours a week, and we have this many games. And and I, because I, I, what, what was supposed to be a kind of flash mob style, you know, really impressive art project, I was, we were just panicking and struggling and putting the call out there. And finally, we ended up having eight skaters of varying abilities <laughs> and levels. And it ended up being something completely different 
but really touching, actually. It was a really, or the process was at least, I'm not sure about the the result. Um, not, not that many people saw it, but uh, the process was really fabulous. So, Yeah, so we tried to have a roller derby hockey face-off as well um, in this unruly hockey match, but we might be able to get three or four derby girls spent. <laughs> Okay. As the subject of Dirty Feet is, is primarily interested in, in movement in the performing mm-hmm. arts, I just wanted to kind of outline that connection uh, for myself and for our audience members. Uh, first, evidently, as I said at the beginning, it's the relationship with 303, which, uh, for a little history lesson, began operating in 1989. You joined the team. I was kind of around in 1990, but okay, yeah. <laughs> I've Perfect. been there a long time. I stopped counting. According to my notes, officially <laughs> the the birth of the the festival was, of course, twenty years ago, as we said. So in nineteen ninety three, you there was three days. dancer choreographers who found it. Paul and I were involved. Uh, Paul Kasky, he was like maintenance guy slash technician slash dancing for one of the founders, Martha Carter. Okay, and I was doing a bit of exchange work for classes, and then everyone left. <laughs> we kind of inherited it. Martha was still around for the first five years, but um, the other two founders left within the first year. Okay. And you've carried the torch yeah. along. Yeah. And, uh, and now, since 1995, you, were, you are now officially artistic and general director yeah. of 303. Paul went to Halifax. So there's the connection. There's <laughs> the understanding. Obviously, there's a connection between gender and between sports and between dance or performing arts. Mm-hmm. It's all about the body. For somebody coming from a dance perspective or a performance arts perspective, because there, there's a huge, there's a week of programming that you're putting on and there's a, a variation mm-hmm. in events and performances. Where would you direct somebody who's interested in, in movement and in dance and body work? Well, I mean, the only place you're going to actually see dance is at Game On, the, the happening that's happening at the Blue Cap, but you know the peop- the dancers I know they almost uh, half of them have um, a sports practice too, and mm-hmm. um, or at least are active in their bodies. So for that reason, I would say, well, no, come 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 skating. You know, you can actually participate. And then of course the lucha. It's a really it's a blend. It's it's part sport, part art, part stand up comedy. <laughs> And then, but it's all improv in the moment. So I think I think all the events will speak to people interested in dance. I think I'm reaching to to find out uh, if Julian Doko would mm-hmm. be an interesting artist to check out yes. if you like dance at the Edgy Women. Absolutely, there will be at the Game On um, at the Chablu. There are three dance performances, and I would say Julian's is the danciest. Of the three. <laughs> There's Antonia Livingston as well, who does, um, her, her practice is more performative, I'd say. And then uh, Judith de Paul from France, who's using a dancer, but it's also in a very um, sports representational uh, manner. But yeah, uh, Julienne has a, a duet. Hello, Julienne. You may not have noticed uh, listeners, but Julienne's actually in studio with us as well. <laughs> How are you today? I'm good, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start with your artistic uh, parcours. Where do you come from? Mm-hmm. Interesting question. <laughs> um, I was born in the Republic of Central Africa, and I was raised in France. So I have like two identities, let's say. Um, but then I traveled. Quite a lot, and I lived in the U.S., in Canada, in Brazil, in Denmark, and I'm back in Canada now, going back to Brazil next year. So, and I've collected like different sides and identities, you know, in all my travels, all my different states and different countries. So, and it sounds like this is something that's very evident in your work: is that multiple influences and different styles coming out into into your personal signature. Yes, yes, uh, very much so. Um, because I I don't have a, 
formal training, right? I just trained, you know, as I lived, as I traveled, as I studied. So I, my background is, uh, well, uh, ballet, and then I did jazz dance, and then hip-hop, and then I discovered uh, samba, Afro-Brazilian style, Afro-Cuban, traditional West African from Guinea, and then uh, Afro-Contemporary when I was here, and then Saba from Senegal, and then so all of this, you know, is part of I guess my style and um, my body cannot help but use all of this, you know, all of those influences. So, yeah, it's, it's there in, in, in my movement, uh, you know, style and signature, let's say. What attracted you to the Edgy Women Festival as a venue for presenting your work? Well, the theme, um, you know, the dichotomy between sports and arts, uh, feminine, masculine, I thought was really... Like my piece that I created before, it was really right on, you know, in, for the, the theme of the festival, I thought, because it is about dance. It is about the, you know, identity, one's identity, and also the body as an inde independent entity. So identity throughout the body, postulating that the body has an intelligence. What does it go through, you know, to find its deep identity once it's freed from all the social you know markers right and so i wanted to do that through dance which is really at the intersection between sports and arts because it's both a sport let's not forget it <laughs> and it's art right and yes the masculine feminine side also because dance would be seen mostly here in this part of the world as feminine. And the thing is that the demographics show that it is more feminine because there are more women in dance in general. That's what I notice when I go to classes, when I go to shows, etc. So that would be like the feminine side, the soft side, you know. But at the same time, it's very physical, right? And it's always about uh, surpassing yourself, you know, going, pushing your body further and further. And it's also about competition because in dance, there is competition also. So that would be the masculine side. And in my piece, I put those two sides together. I took my personal experience of the black female body, and I wanted two women looking for their identity throughout the body. So it's a very feminine piece with a musician who is also a woman <laughs> playing drums, which can be you know, associated with masculine side. So I really wanted to mix all of that in my piece and then you know, presenting it in the venue, Edge Women uh, venue, for me, it was really made, made sense. Yeah. So we're going to see yourself and another female dancer. And, yes, uh, we are two. And one musician. Exactly, it's a duet, and then a live musician. Wonderful, and you're performing at Chable. Yes. Great. Friday and Saturday. Um, Julienne, I think uh, I saw your piece, Caracar, in May. You presented it at uh, Joanne Gouz Lien. Yes. I remember because I saw Zab Mabungu coming yes. in, in the space, and I was like, mm -hmm. I'm not in the space, sorry, in the audience mm -hmm. to see you because you've yeah. danced with uh, Niata Niata yes. for a year mm -hmm. or two. I'm not I'll sure. Say, but yeah. <laughs> I remember Caracar had a lot of musicians on stage, yes. and I remember it being very lively, very grounded. I remember you were doing all this pushing and pulling with your partner exactly, yeah. on the floor. I remember it very, very vividly. Mm -hmm. um, how has it evolved since? It's been close to a year since you've presented there. How yes. has it changed? Um, well, yes, it has changed because uh, first I presented the piece at uh, the Ouagadougou International Dance Festival in January in Burkina Faso in Africa. Mm -hmm. And it was supposed to be the duet, but then turns out I had to present it solo. So it became a solo mm -hmm. all of a sudden, right? So I had to fight you know, against myself. So, but that also works, right? Because don't we fight, you know, against ourselves, in our head, <laughs> in our bodies, you know, mind, yeah. body. And now I'm going back to the duet version because originally it was meant as a duet, you know, for the face-off, for, you know, the battle side, the struggle side of the of the piece. It has evolved, uh, well, it, you know, a piece always evolves anyways. So I guess like the, the beginning and the end are actually different. I don't know if I should tell you how exactly. Mm -hmm. Maybe you want <laughs> to keep, uh, keep some yes. suspense. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. That's fine. We accept that. <laughs> I'm curious about why you decided to work with Jackie, um, who's the musician, Jackie Gannon. Mm -hmm. uh, because I saw George Stamos' mm -hmm. piece um, that he made for Montreal Dance. Mm -hmm. 
and she was uh, the musician, also mm-hmm. a composer, and I really liked the music. That's and Husk, right? Yeah, Husk, yeah. exactly, which was presented at L'Agora de la Danse in February last year, I think. Also, George uh, is, was a dancer in Nieta Nieta, so we were colleagues, right? Also, he, of course, told me a lot of great things about Jackie, <laughs> how professional she is, how creative. And I saw her perform also. And I was like, she's also a great performer, you know, not just musician, but a p- performer and a woman, you know. So I was like, okay, you know, I would really like her to be in my piece and compose and drum, you know. But then what happened for the Jésus, at the Jésus, was that um, she was not available, so I had to mm. find other musicians. And so... Initially, well, I was supposed to have only one musician on stage. There was not one musician. No, there were <laughs> many. <four. laughs> yeah. A trumpet and exactly. a big, you know, a drum set <laughs> and a DJ and a composer. So, so it takes four people to replace her. So <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. She has a lot of presence. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, but so now we're back to you know having one musician on stage, and which is also great. You know, I mean, it was fun to have four people, you know, four musicians. It brought a lot of energy, you know, power and everything. But also with Jackie, it's just different, but it's, you know, it's great. <laughs> I'm wondering, um, as, as a dancer, your relationship to the music, do you ever feel that it's combative? Well, it's really, co- I see it as being really complimentary. Like, I use... It is possible to dance with that music because there is a rhythm that your body creates, you know what I mean? Movement creates rhythm. So it is possible, but of course, having music to support the movement, or it can also be exactly like going against the movement, that creates also something, you know, going against. Uh, It's really not easy to compose, you know, for a dance piece. And I see that when we work with Jackie, you know, it's like, and she has her point of view because she sees the movements and she so has her own inter- interpretation and then she translates that into music. And I just have an idea. I have the movement. I have my story. And then I was like, well, so here it should sound like this and this and this. But she's like, but maybe that it doesn't flow that much, etc. So it's very interesting to work together. And I usually I like to have live music on stage because of course it's just like more energy and it, it's and it's live and it's it's like you have to be there both the musicians uh, and the dancer we have to be present like a hundred percent so there's a dialogue that is you know it's a dialogue basically between music and dance and it's very important so yes so it can be you know moving with the music moving you know opposite to the music and being actually pushed by the music or trying to press down the music. I mean, there are different relationships that are created with music and movement. And did you get a lot of time to rehearse in the Blue Cat Boxing Gym already? Well, kind of, (laughs) like last week and yesterday. So we hope to have a bit more (laughs) time there. How do you feel the space influences you as an artist? Do you feel that because, because it's a particular type of, of setting for an art performance and that's kind of the point mm-hmm. do, do you feel that so far it's really nourished you in in your performance yes actually when i saw that the performance was going to be at the blue cat uh, boxing club i was like yes i am applying for this definitely in a boxing ring on top of it. it's like yes this is the essence this is the spirit of my piece right because it's about really fighting you know with another one against another one for your identity, for your freedom, for etc. So it's perfect if it's in a boxing ring, which is like a bad box, you know, but then you put dance inside a boxing ring, right? So that's just like, like I think How do you I like that little squishy surface? Yeah. Um, challenging. <laughs> challenging, especially for my knees. <laughs> but... No, actually, it, uh, no, it works. It's, mm-hmm. it's fine. You know, and the ropes, it gives something, you know, mm-hmm. the ropes, like, encircling the, the space gives something different. But you saw a rehearsal yesterday. Maybe you can tell us, like, what you thought, you know, how, 
Mm-hmm. What was the result of dance yeah. inside the boxing ring and around also the boxing ring in front of it? I don't know, like yeah. you can well, I thought it was really cool, but of course I was watching it with the, the producer eye, mm-hmm. and so I was like, now careful, because there's going to be an installation over here, and, <laughs> and you know, I think the audience is not going to be standing there. I think they're going to be standing here, and so it's, it's challenging because you didn't make the piece for there, mm-hmm. so you have to really adapt it. Exactly. To, not just to the ring, but to the to the, the fact you actually don't even know where they're going to be because they're free to do as they please. Exactly. <laughs> Unlike in a theater setting. So, but I think that that's when it's going to come become really alive, right? Yeah, it is a challenge. It's yeah. true because I'm used to you know um, making a piece mm-hmm. in the traditional you know setting, you know, sort of like a theater. Uh, I'm on stage and then you're the kind audience who is sitting <laughs> and you're watching, you know, and you don't say a word and you don't move around because this is my space, this is your space, right? That's what makes. So this time it's really like exactly, you cannot really mm-hmm. just, you know, stick to that. And it's true, it's a, it's a mm-hmm. challenge, but also I would say that naturally, as a performer, of course, I always dance, I always make a connection mm-hmm. with the audience. So. Uh, I mean, I know that I will be drawn anyways to go towards the audience who will be probably around. So if, you know, people are around me, I'm just going to yeah. try to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's the scary stay. stuff that's always the most fun, too. Exactly. Right? exactly. So it's not, mm-hmm. I guess, some, we may have some surprises mm-hmm. and we may have to just adapt, like, on the spot. So mm-hmm. that's also a good challenge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I actually have a logistics question about the performance of the Blue Cat Boxing Gym. Are the um, punching bags, have they been removed from the space? No. How will the audience be set up in the space for, for they, the... They won't be set up at all. Okay. So they'll just have to wander around and find their place. There's one piece, uh, Judith de Paul, that first she, she, she thought she wanted some chairs and really frontal, but I think she's given up on that notion and people will just have to figure out their own way. We will have to remove some bags or lift them for the... Uh, lucha, because that's, yeah, they'll really be in the way. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, we're trying to do as little as possible to the space, and Phil, the owner, is very uh, attached to that as well. He really doesn't want us to change much, but of course, there's some things we have to do. And it's one of three spaces that uh, is hosting the festival this year. So you've yeah. got the, the Chabler, the Blue Cat Boxing Ring. Yeah. You've got uh, Montreal Arena. Yeah. And, of course, 303, yeah. without a doubt. The festival runs actually from March 2nd to the 10th, so it's already begun. And uh, how did Nuit Blanche go? Well, I, have you been to the Belgo on Nuit Blanche? It's madness. Yeah. I didn't get a chance to go this mm-hmm. year, but it's like elbows up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> We've kind of figured it out now, you know, but um, we see almost 2,000 people come through Studio 303, which is more uh, people than we get the rest of the year combined. <laughs> and it, this is the first year that Edgy and Reblanche have come together, and it, it happened, I thought it was going to be in February, and then, you know, the date ended up being March, and it was like, okay, I have to integrate it. And actually, it worked out really well because it's a, Reblanche is a good audience development opportunity in a sense um, because of these 2,000 people, maybe maybe 100 of them are, are, are people who know 303 of the festival and the others don't. So mm-hmm. it was a strategic event all night long. I uh, really thought about, okay, how can I get these short attention span wandering around all night hordes of people to remember <laughs> where they've been and to connect it with the festival and we might repeat the formula next year because it, I think it worked well, we'll see um, so we had a photo booth, an interactive photo booth where we had sports paraphernalia and wigs and things like that, so it was, you know it's a silly activity and people just love to get dressed up and have their photo taken at Nuit Blanche uh, we uploaded it to our edgy women fest um, person page facebook and then we put a, a quote on the photo and it was either statistics or just des faits divers you know that were a little bit provocative to make people think so that every time they look at the photo 
they have to see Edgy Women Festival <laughs> and a quote. And one of them was, uh, you know, for example, the fact that the Canadian Women's Hockey League annual budget is equivalent to a mediocre male player's salary. Stuff like that that is shocking, mm -hmm. frankly. So we, we put some little tidbits like that on it. And then in the uh, studio, we, we uh, Andréanne Cassette uh, programmed uh, short films around sports and gender. And actually, we took a lot of the films from a sister festival called Désordre in Lille that's organized by the Rencontre Féministe. And they did a sports theme about, uh, yeah, last year. And uh, it's really just a coincidence. And there's some funny other coincidences with this new festival. We've programmed some of the same artists, some of the same works, and I'm looking in the future to developing a partnership with them. Anyway, so we had the, the short films, and then in between the films, during intermission, we kind of projected, you know, inform like basically ads <laughs> for our other events. So, yeah, so I think, it, it, you know, we managed to make it strategic and promotional without compromising the artistic integrity. It was great also to have these films that were, again, pretty niche, a lot of them, uh, shown to a really broad public, and I think they were really well received, so... I find that the, the photo booth, especially as a marketing ploy, mm -hmm. and I don't want to make it sound too somber or anything, but it's one of the most interesting social networking approaches I've seen so far because mm -hmm. it really gets people to see and to question mm -hmm. the images they see in a way that, you know, people who are not friends with DHG Women Fest might not get to through Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, how did the idea for that come exactly? Because I, I find it interesting. During the Nuit Blanche, there was this Le Lait uh, booth where oh, they yeah. would also take pictures, yeah. but with like just going down a slide yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And there is a nice bit of subverting there mm -hmm. of that idea of very mainstream, like take a happy picture, but... Yeah. I'm going to stamp it you, with something. Yeah, exactly. You know, that <laughs> yeah. will actually bring people to have yeah. to question yeah. and pay attention also, mm -hmm. like really grabbing people's attention rather than just delivering something mm -hmm. sweet and tasty. Yeah, and they don't know until later. It's the mm -hmm. next day that they go, oh, <laughs> look, there's this statement on my photo. Yeah. What I mean, is the, this? <laughs> the photo booth uh, idea, it didn't come from other Nuit Blanche stuff. It was something um, that actually it was an artist proposed project uh, about three years ago, Nicole Mikis at um, one of the festive edgy women events proposed a photo booth uh, with costumes and it was very it was a very light you know project um, uh, interactive meant to kind of for people to have fun at um, the edgy challenge that we used to do. So she proposed that. And then last year, you know, when we have the Nuit Blanche, because it's been getting madder and madder every year, it's really, we can't just do what we like because uh, when we've done artistic events that were more like, oh, well, I can only have 60 people at a time or this is my concept, what happened was there was 100 people lined up waiting. And when I've experienced the Nuit Blanche, it's been lineups and it drives me crazy and I find that really disrespectful to to everyone who's out really so so I just made it a priority that we had to have an activity that just wasn't you know wherever there's always room for other people yeah so there's a photo booth and and the film screening was for that we did do a photo booth again last year as a fundraising activity because we were thinking okay Nuit Blanche 2,000 people coming in why don't we just make this our fundraiser you know and sell beer and sell photos and we did that and then this year uh I wanted to do it again, but I wanted to. I was I was just so sure that if people just came, they wouldn't remember where they were unless we really pounded them over the head with it. And that that statistic that I told you about the hockey league uh, budget is something that really really shocked me. And I thought if it really shocks me, <laughs> it will really shock other people. And I wanted I wanted to find more shocking kind of Harper's Index style statistics, but. Uh, I didn't have much time to research that stuff, but we came up with about five quotes that I thought I hoped would make people think. That's actually bringing me to a question that I was really wondering about. Edgy Women Fest, it's a festival that, in my opinion, was born out of a need mm. originally. Could you talk to us a bit about the context, like the social context when yeah. the festival was created? It wasn't consciously born out of a need, but that's 
doesn't mean that the need wasn't there. It probably more reflects my personality. <laughs> but when I was at um, Studio 303, actually some women came from New York and did a performance with some, like a shared program. And Paul, who was more the programmer at the time, I was doing more administration, called it Women from the Edge for no particular reason, you know, just based on the work of these women and... And it happened, and it was a big success. And then they wanted to – it was Karen Bernard from New York. She wanted to come back and do something similar. And Paul just said, this is stupid, me organizing the show called Women from the Edge. You, you do it, Miriam. <laughs> and I thought, well, that is just the stupidest name. I can't do that. It reminds me of women on the verge of a nervous breakdown, which had come out not that long before. So that's where edgy women came. So, you know, it's really not like this great brainstorming. or It was a little bit accidental, but I know there's always choices involved in accidents as well. But at the same time, parallel to that, I, I've been organizing um, Le Boudoir, which was a lesbian cabaret annually at uh, the Lyon d'Or, and then Meow Mixes. And unconsciously, I guess, edgy women became the, the place where I could do more programming that I was more personally interested in and politically interested in, but that would be supported by Studio 303. And I always felt a bit, um, not guilty, but a bit, I wasn't sure if it was uh, ethical or allowed or, you know, I felt, yeah, a little uncomfortable with uh, Edgy Women because it wasn't really Studio 303's mandate, but it's the event that caught my heart and um, imagination and it's become Studio 303's most popular event for sure and and it's funny because sometimes I feel like I'm running a queer feminist performance space disguised as a dance studio <laughs> and I you know it's reflected in the staff there as well and and I've kind of come to terms with that now and and I've, I've spoken about it openly to um, my uh, board as well of directors and and I've sort of you know, I even I don't apologize for it, but in some of the grant applications, you know, as a dance presenter, I'll start. You know, we're not really. I mean, we do present dance, but that's not who we are. It's just the only. It seems to be the most convenient category to put us in now. So, so I'm kind of out <laughs> about that, and it seems to be really fine with with funders, with the board, with the community. Montreal doesn't have. A more mainstream queer festival per se. Like there, there are some smaller grassroots mm -hmm. festivals, but yeah. in a more mainstream scene, Edgy Women is pretty much the only one that we could equate with the the queer scene. Yeah. So I feel that there is a need for that at least, so that the queer scene can be represented on a more mainstream level. Mm -hmm. But do you ever feel that it is turning into something that can only be seen as part of the queer scene, or do you feel that? Feminists who don't identify as queer are still welcome or would still feel mm -hmm. welcome in the festival? I think everyone feels welcome. I think that the, war, that the name Edgy Women is not too alienating because it's a little bit saucy and, you know, mm -hmm. it kind of implies provocation and sexy and maybe funny. And so I feel like that will attract. And, and queer is never, you know, it's something that queers know. Mm -hmm that they recognize right away. But it's not really stated anywhere. And the fact that I'm always trying to make feminism fun, I think, hopefully opens it up. But I don't know. I mean, Edgy Women it has a small audience, you know. It's not... It might have a bigger audience in terms of repercussions, um, in terms of media attention and discussions, and people know about it. But uh, the, the, the events, you know, they draw about 100 people or so, so, or sometimes two, sometimes three, or three blanche 2,000, but that's <laughs> circumstantial, really. But I think that's interesting what you say. I think there's a real lack in Montreal. Uh, it's crazy, you know, the, the, the gay village. I mean, I can't believe that we have such a huge, visible, wealthy gay village, and that there's not a single art gallery or theater or... Well, it's also it's very a very... Weird. It's a very one-way street in the village, mm -hmm. I feel. I mean, literally, because mm -hmm. also St. Catherine's one-way. But it's very much become a commercial space, mm -hmm. first and foremost. And there's no place for anything that's yeah. outside of the norm. But there isn't even commercial art, mm -hmm. except in the summer on the street at, during that festival. But there's, uh, 
But even then, I feel that it's become such a mainstream gay space mm -hmm. that the art that would be presented anyway would be very mainstream art, mm -hmm. so there wouldn't be much space for thinking outside of the norms. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like there, there are so many spots which are popping up all around the city, mm -hmm. just with the, the Royal Phoenix, which is a queer-identified bar more mm -hmm. than a gay bar. Mm -hmm. And this has been popping up all over, so I feel that the village is... Like the rest of Montreal has been reclaimed mm -hmm. by the queer community, mm -hmm. so I don't. I, I think that the village is becoming a bit obsolete anyway. Like people are finding their own spaces mm -hmm. away from that. Yeah. That point. But there are key things that other cities have. Mm -hmm. Montreal's always a little odd, you know. Like we don't have our. I mean, every city has a women's bookstore and a gay and lesbian bookstore. Almost every city, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but not not Montreal. Um, And then, or the, the women's sex shop, but that's more about zoning, I think. We don't even have a lesbian bar. It's okay. It's kind of cool, actually. But Montreal's always, it's always just like a little different than what goes on elsewhere. <laughs> so 20 years is a big landmark. Mm -hmm. um, you've made it this far, and there's been a lot of new launches this year with your Nuit Blanche presentation, with the, the theme mm -hmm. for this year. What's next? Yeah, it's funny. You know, I, I mean, I was thinking about stopping this after 20 years and I, I'm in a bit of in my personal life I'm in a place where I'm stopping things <laughs> uh, I just recently stopped doing meow mixes retired from that and I'm actually planning a sabbatical from Studio 303 in 1415 but I have to say that this edition of Edgy and maybe I was putting kind of a last I don't know surge of uh, excitement into it But it has, it's really been exciting. And it's been, I've had an incredible team that's come together out of nowhere. Like, there's just been so much interest in doing it that uh, I definitely will continue for a few more years. Um, I was toying with doing it every two years instead and trying to work something out with uh, the Désordre Festival. Or there's a, another festival um, in Ljubljana as well called uh, City of Women that is absolutely incredible and I thought maybe it'd be more fun to partner and do something a little less often but a little more in partnership I'm not sure yet but one thing definitely I want to do is decentralize the festival a bit and have more guest curators or committees and definitely keep it thematic that's been really just a great way to focus the programming and, and think about I don't know, just, just, but yeah, I really loved doing a theme. So, But I think next year we will probably use uh, more traditional venues just um, <laughs> to make our lives easier. But, you know, you never know. You never know. Because I kind of want to do a food theme one year. And you can't really That's use a traditional thing. Yeah. That's yeah. going to get messy. <laughs> yeah, that could so. get messy. <laughs> Wonderful. Can you give us a breakdown of what to expect uh, in the festival week? Yes, yeah, so it, it's actually very much condensed on four days, what's left of it, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And Thursday is the first time we're doing a colloquium. I've always, as I was talking about before, wanting to bridge with uh, the academic milieu. And we've done a few, last year we did with uh, UPUP, we did some uh, kind of courses, uh, feminist artist talk and courses that were uh, moderated by uh, Barb Legault that were really amazing and uh, in other years we've had artists visit uh, classrooms for you know and do certain lectures and stuff but this year we really wanted to bring it together and do something intense and we have a colloquium from 10 a.m. till 3 p.m. at the Blue Cat Boxing Club and there will be performative lectures performances um, shared experiences facilitated discussions and also a little more straight up academic presentations um, and we've got presenters coming from uh, Brooklyn and Victoria and from Montreal so that's that I'm, I'm really really excited about it's going to be a first and I think it's really fun to do the colloquium in the boxing club you know one of the presentations is going to happen in the workout room and and so people watching can sit on exercise bikes while they <laughs> they watch um Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that. And we're going to live stream it as well. And then that night is uh, Unruly Hockey, which is organized by Meg Hewings, who's the manager of the Montreal Stars and of the Canadian uh, National Women's Hockey League. And she's, she's really, really passionate about the game 
and uh, organizes a weekly hockey match called the Lovely Hockey League on Thursday nights. And this this time, the slot will be unruly hockey. So people can come at 10.30 with um, skates, a stick, a helmet, and they can participate, anybody in the game. If there's 100 people, it will be a game with 100 players. Uh-huh. If there's <laughs> 12, you, you know. You can attend and just watch as well? Yeah, you, you can also come and just watch, um, and the, the match will begin at 11 p.m. And you can also come watch and bring your skates, and then at midnight, there's a 30-minute skate disco party <laughs> in the arena. So I think that's going to be really exciting. I hope a lot of people come to that. And then Friday and Saturday, it's Game On at the Chablou, which is the happening with many artists that uh, Julien Doco is participating in. There's about a dozen artists, so I won't name them all. Um, but there'll also be things like uh, one of the performers, Lex Vaughn, is doing something called Jock's Lunch, and she'll just be serving hot dogs and stuff, but in a performative manner. Um, There's going to be a feminist foosball table. I don't know what that's going to look like. We'll see. And then there's a bodybuilder pony ride. (laughs) How cool is that? It's like like pony rides, like a manege, but on bodybuilders. Yes. (laughs) And then it's almost the same thing both nights, um, but there is one difference, which is the first night, Coral Short will be doing a three-hour... performance where she's going to beat herself up. It's called Stop Beating Yourself Up, and we'll see how she endures that. We might have a boxing match as well on the Friday. And then on Saturday, Heather Castles is going to do a piece where she beats up a big hunk of clay. Um, And it's a a piece that's in a small, dark room, and she's only illuminated by the camera flash. And that's called The Shape of Things to Come, where she beats up a block of clay. Yeah, that's Really fun. And then on the Sunday, to close, we are doing Edgy Lucha. And this is um, something that came about because I invited Marès Boulogne, who is an incredible artist, really one of the most brilliant women I know. I invited her to come and direct the happening because she didn't have a piece that was appropriate for the festival, but I thought I really wanted her to be involved. And she said, yeah, I can do that, sure. And she's also teaching a workshop next week. But then she said, but... You don't know this, Miriam, but what I really, really, really desperately, desperately want to do is come and wrestle. And I've been running a wrestling club for two years in Brussels, and I had no idea. And she is completely crazy about wrestling. Yeah, it's, it's like changed her life. She's mad about it. So she's been here for, she'll, she'll be here for a month and all. And she's just recruiting and going to matches and trying to, and trying to connect with this world that is very, very different but that she already has familiarity with, even though I imagine it's different in Brussels. So she wants to get um, the fighters that we've recruited here to do something that's out of their aesthetic comfort zone. It's a little more um, 1950s-style retro. And, of course, you know, as an experimental theater artist, she will, I don't, we'll see. We'll see what she does. Um, I know Alexis O'Hara is also going to come as Guizola Nui and is going to co-MC um, and learn all the uh, names of all the moves and stuff. And we'll see. This this is a really gigantic experiment. So Guizo is going to be giving running commentary on the wrestling, or Guizo is going to try, I think, okay. to give running, but might be helped by Mares. Uh, yeah. Who yes, so we'll, we'll see how it works out, and then Polly Corn is doing something I don't know what. Dana McLeod has volunteered to be a ring girl, which means she gets to wear a bikini and hold up signs. So it's going to be pretty kooky. Oh, it sounds like so yeah. much fun! The whole festival sounds mm-hmm. like a, a good time and a, and a thought-provoking yeah. good time. Yeah, it's funny because you know people are really excited about the wrestling, like really, really, really excited. Yet there's there's wrestling every week. But the edgy crowd didn't know about it. And right. when I went to the, those women, the, the wrestling matches, I was really surprised because I don't know what I expected, but I thought it would, I thought, I equated it a bit with roller derby because it's kind of sexy. Oh, it's, okay. like, it's like sexy sports entertainment, sort of, you know. But you go to roller derby and granted there's a really broad audience, but it's, it's hipster, right? Not 100%, but still it's pretty hipster it's part of the audience it attracts for sure but you go to the wrestling it's not hipster at all yet 
you know, you'd think it has a kind of kitsch crossover appeal or something. And I don't know what to say about it, but uh, I was really surprised. Like, there's a real class difference, you know. It's really flagrant. Yeah, very working class, poor audience. Um, mostly men, a couple of children, a couple of women. And I was also surprised, uh, like, at roller derby of beer, you know. At wrestling, you don't. It's it, there's like Pepsi and maybe a hot dog, ninety nine cents hot. It's really a whole other crowd. And I also thought when I walked in, you see the 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 women wrestlers and they look a little bit porn starish. You know, they've got hardcore cleavage going on and and they're standing behind tables and they're selling photographs of themselves and calendars and DVDs of last month's match. And so I expected something a little more porny. <laughs> when they got into the ring but when they get into the ring they're just monsters they're they're stand-up comedian monsters <laughs> and it's it's just about it's it's it was i'm still thinking about it i don't know what it's about and the audience um the audience i thought would be a bit more i suppose overtly sexist or you know like yeah you know bitch i was expected more language more and it's a submissive audience you know, they're really, they're submissive and they're supportive and they're really engaged. And it just, it's it's about something else. It's uh, There's a kind of release about seeing women out of control. There's a whole theatrics. There's like five huge bodyguards protecting the audience from these crazy unleashed women, you know. So th it's fascinating. I really encourage people to, to check out. There's, the wrestling scene. There's also something about wrestling, like the performativity in wrestling, mm -hmm. which lends itself so well to the Edgy Women Fest. Mm -hmm. Just like about the, the the persona that you create, that you give to the public. Absolutely. Which is very fascinating. And the women that do this res the wrestling, I mean, they're not in it for the money. Like, they are really badly paid, and it's so hard on the body, and but they're they're so passionate about it really really passionate it's amazing thank you both so much miriam and julienne for coming in today i'm really excited to catch some of the edgy women festival this year and in the future as mm -hmm. it sounds like that's going to be possible best of luck thank, thank you. you thanks mm -hmm. thank you <laughs> bear in mind that she is a genuine savage and reacts with ferocious instinct Well, that's Dirty Feet for this week. Edgy Women Festival. That was a great interview, and it was a long one, so I'm going to keep this short. But I want to remind you about our Facebook page, Dirty Feet Podcast, our Twitter account, Dirty Dirty Feet, and uh, the website, of course, where you probably are listening to the show right now, Dirty Feet at No More Radio. Uh, you can actually, if you're looking for the URL, it's www no more radio slash show slash dirty feet. Another way you can listen to us is to go to iTunes and you can actually subscribe to the podcast so it'll download automatically every week because of course it is a weekly podcast. We go up every Wednesday and you can uh, listen to all our past episodes as well off iTunes if you prefer that podcast route uh, right on your phone and whatnot. Another update for Dirty Feet. We went to uh, two different shows this week, and both opportunities, uh, we went with our ticket winners from our giveaways. So thanks, everybody, who participated on Facebook and our giveaways. And uh, there will be more, I promise you. But our lucky winners, uh, Louise and Greg, got to each see a show via Dirty Feet. Uh, yeah, it was really fun to have people with us to, to really bring, um, especially Louise, who is not uh, a regular dance watcher. So to really bring her and get to see a dance show. I think as dancers, we want to share our passion with more and more people. So, you know, if you hear of any more contests, invite people to participate in. It's usually really easy to just so just tell them, you know, hey, there's this contest and you could go see a dance show for free. And uh, you can check out what we thought of those dance shows by going to uh, thebloodyunderrated.net. We've got a couple of reviews up. One for, uh, it was uh, Jose Navas's Miniatures. We talked to him last week about his solo show, and I got to review that one. 
and I got to talk about Carte Blanche's Corps de Walk, which was presented at Danse Danse. We'll talk at you next week. Have a good one. The Venus Hottentot will show you the ability she has to parade as a European lady. <laughs> La tête offre des moyens plus sûrs de distinction parce qu'on a mieux étudié. C'est d'après elle que l'on a toujours classé les nations. Et à cet égard, notre Boschimane offre des différences très remarquables et très singulières. Qu'ils avaient le crâne et le cerveau aussi volumineux. Quand l'amour, il ne faisait pas exception à cette loi cruelle qui semble avoir condamné à une éternelle infériorité les races à crâne déprimé et comprimé. Dirty Feet is recorded every week at the Montreal Improv Theatre. Check them out at montrealimprov.com. Dirty Feet is produced and hosted by... Alison Burns. J.D. Papillon. Joanie Farrand. And distributed by No More Radio. You can find more about our show at nomoradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Dirty Dirty Feet. And you can find us on Facebook at Dirty Feet Podcast. Tune in next week for a whole new show.